Uh, Donald Trump is now the fourth US president to face an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives. All this centres around a phone call that took place between Trump and his Ukrainian counterpart in July of this year. During the call, President Zelensky was urged to open an investigation into former Vice President Joe Biden and his son, who served on the board of a Ukrainian gas company. Trump rejects suggestions that he withheld military aid to Ukraine to ensure its cooperation in this matter. Suzanne Lynch, Washington correspondent with the Irish Times, uh, joins me now. Good afternoon to you, Suzanne, though it's morning in your life. Tell me about Friday. Yes, well, Friday was the second day of public hearings in the impeachment inquiry. So this impeachment probe began last September, in September, about six weeks ago, when Nancy Pelosi announced that she was beginning this impeachment inquiry because details of that phone call you mentioned were released. But this week it opened a new phase because for the first time we had live televised hearings of witnesses to this impeachment inquiry testifying. So there was lots of talk about the Watergate hearings that so transfixed America back in the 70s when the American public got to see these witnesses publicly talking about the president and the activity that was going on. And it was similar here this week. So there were three witnesses that testified, two men on Wednesday, that's the acting ambassador to Ukraine and another State Department official. And on Friday was the former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. And she had been recalled early from her post by Donald Trump earlier this year. She was told to get on the next plane to Washington. Um, and she had already testified privately last month to these uh, this committee, these 22 members of the committee and others. And this details of that had leaked out in which she described what she said was essentially a concerted campaign against her that had been orchestrated primarily by Rudy Giuliani. He's the personal lawyer to Donald Trump. He's obviously the, the former mayor of New York yeah. also. Uh, and on Friday, she uh, she got her moment, if you like, to talk about this publicly. And she very, in a very kind of dignified, quiet spoken way, she set out what happened and how she felt she was a victim of the smear campaign, how her, how she got this phone call at 10 o'clock at night and you need to get on the next plane home, how her boss at the State Department said, you've done nothing wrong, but basically you've lost the confidence of the president. Uh, and she set that out in very stark terms on Friday. And why did she lose the confidence of the president? Because she was kind of like... I know they're appointed at the pleasure of the president um, under the American system, but she had worked in public service for years and years and years. She had. She was one of the most senior diplomats and she was one of the most senior female uh, diplomats when she was appointed to this post in 2016. And like a lot of people who are testifying, she was at pains to point out that she had served both Republican and Democratic presidents, that she had no political allegiances and her job was to represent America. What she was doing, she said, was rooting out anti-corruption. That was what U.S. policy was trying to bring about in Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine is going through this very difficult time following the incursion by Russia into the country. Uh, and America was trying to uh, get the country to kind of Ukraine to clean up its act effectively. And she talked about how she was doing this. But then how she was told and she began to gradually realise uh, that the president and the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, uh, had lost confidence. Nobody told her what she had actually done. But she began to see, she she recalled in this uh, hearing on Friday how Donald Trump Jr., Donald Trump's son, 
began to send out negative tweets about her, how Fox News began to run negative uh, pieces about her, and that she rang her bosses in Washington and said, look, I need some kind of a public statement of support by the Secretary of State here, or I can't do my job. And they said, that's not forthcoming. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, can't do that because effectively he believes that this could be undermined by Donald Trump in a tweet. That's what she was told. Uh, and then she, she got herself back to Washington. She talked about how in her job, reputation is everything. And at one point, you know, you felt in the room that perhaps she was going to well up and, and yep. you know, some of the, the lawyer who was questioning her kind of said, you know, take a moment if you need to. But you got that sense that it, this was her, you know, opportunity to put things on the record, that she's extremely upset that her career had effectively ended this way and for no apparent reason. Of course, the big question is why? Why did Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani want to get rid of her? And this is kind of the question that I think really overhung the proceedings completely on Friday. Can you give us the answer? Well, I think because she, they wanted, uh, which was shown in the phone call of July 25th, they wanted the Ukrainian government to investigate Joe Biden, that's the former vice president, because his son was on the board of a Ukrainian gas company. Yeah. And they wanted to investigate him, get incriminating evidence against him. And she and her colleagues felt that that wasn't the job of the American company. That was a politically, a country, that was a politically motivated act by the president to help him get re-elected because Donald Trump sees Joe Biden as his main rival. Joe Biden is running for the Democratic nomination. And importantly, when Donald Trump began this campaign, what we can see from all the witnesses back in April and May, and, he's, and him and Giuliani were trying to get the Ukrainians to investigate Joe Biden. This was just when Joe Biden announced that he was running for president. It was around that time. And he was topping the polls and he was showing, all the polls were showing he uh, was the man to beat Donald Trump. Now, he's gone down a bit in, in, since then. Yeah. Uh, but it was in this context that Donald Trump started this investigation. And he wanted her out of the way, effectively, so he could do this. He called her bad news in the phone call that he had with the Ukrainian president in July. The transcript uh, was released. He that, said this about his ambassador yeah. to the yeah. head of another state. Yeah. That and she was bad news. Bad news. And also, which was more threatening, if you like, he said she was going to go through some things. That's what he said. So she was asked about this by Democrats uh, on, on Friday saying, did you feel threatened by this? And she quietly said, I did. It sounded like a threat. And she talked about how the person who watched her reading this transcript, she read it like everybody else when it was released in September. She had the colour drained from her face. And she kind of, again, went very quiet in the room and said, you know, words are still failing me about this. She described how she could not believe that she was being mentioned in this way by the president to another head of state for doing, as she said herself, nothing wrong. And indeed, she got that support, did she not, from within the State Department, from one of the deputies uh, yes. in there. Yeah, who said to her, you've done nothing wrong. But ultimately, as you said, the way the system works, the president can remove you if he wants. You know, you're you're his choice to be there all the time. You serve at his pleasure and he can he can let you go. And on Wednesday, the officials who testified also backed her, backed her up. And I mean, th th this was the issue during the week. The two officials on Wednesday and her on Friday, their careers were impeccable. At the beginning of each hearing, we heard about all about their careers, about where they'd served here, there and the other, what they had done for US foreign policy. So to suggest that these people were somehow a deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump just didn't really seem to ring through. That's what was effective about these can, uh, public testimonies. Can I ask week. you another question? Does anybody care? 
Well, I'm just looking at figures. This week, um, there was a survey just done in the last 24 hours that said 68% of Americans said they were either going to watch this or follow it. 68? Yeah, which is, which is pretty high. Now, yeah. things have changed since Watergate as well. The idea of you know, the family sitting around in the evening to watch the news. During the Watergate hearings, networks used to replay these hearings during the evening when people came in from work. So that's changed. But in saying that, I mean, I think there was a sense here in Washington, you know, it was on the TV everywhere you looked, all the main networks, you know, broke out from their main coverage to cover these hearings. And also now with social media, uh, it meant people were a lot more engaged. And it was great TV. I mean, it was quite compelling. Uh, on particularly on Friday, because nobody expected Jovanovic. One of the one of the hopes for Republicans was that she was going to bring nothing new to this conversation because they'd already heard from her. Right. This issue about Giuliani had already been in the public domain, but watching her talk was compelling. And then particularly what happened then, which was that Donald Trump tweeted in the middle of the, her hearing. She was speaking for about an hour, and and next thing was Donald Trump sent a tweet, and that kind of brought this whole new dimension. To Donald say Trump's what? Kind of live tweeting. He sent a, a pretty vicious tweet uh, out while she was speaking, saying everywhere Marie Jovanovich went turned bad. And she said, he said, she started off in Somalia. How did that go? And went on. So he was making quite a, a, a preposterous suggestion that the re, Somalia's problems were the fault of Marie Jovanovich when she served there as a right. more junior official. Yeah. And then, of course, he was essentially threatening her. And this was brought up then. Democrats seized on this and interrupted proceedings to say to her, by the way, the president is criticising you as you're sitting here. How does that make you feel? And as she said, again, you could see that she was completely shocked. There was a silence. And, and she said she felt intimidated. And they then went on to say, as the proceeding went on, that, you know, he could be accused of witness tampering, that you cannot intimidate witnesses because the message maybe from Donald Trump was, was to other people who are going to testify, you know, this is what I'm going to say about you if you testify in this right. fashion. So it was an extraordinary moment of social media intruding upon this very tense, very serious public hearing uh, in, in, live, right. in live time. The man makes his own rules, um, it, it would appear. Um, mm. But, it, but the, the, do you remember he said himself that if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, his supporters wouldn't deviate yeah. from, from their loyalty to him? Yeah, and this is the thing. On Friday with the tweet, you got the impression some Republicans uh, at lunchtime, they went out and did a press conference that's out in the hall. Yeah. And they looked even embarrassed and taken aback. Um, you know, Ken Starr, people remember him. He was the main special oh, counsel yeah. the Clinton impeachment. He's a Republican. He was on Fox News and he straight away said this was very ill-advised. You know, he should not have done this. His legal counsel should have stopped him doing this. So you can get the sense. Republicans had been practicing the day before in a special committee hearing about how to handle, particularly Jovanovic. They didn't want to make it look like they were kind of picking on this very dignified, very, uh, very successful uh, career foreign service official. So they were kind of, had got their strategy right that they were going to kind of go gently. And then Donald Trump's tweet kind of blew that out of the water. It right. all became about his tweet. Um, but you're right, to get back to your question, what could Donald Trump do at this point to lose support? This is one of the problems, I think, for Democrats with this impeachment uh, trial that, that's probably going to happen now. Um, during the Watergate hearings, again, just because there, there are a lot of similarities here, obviously what, what brought down Nixon was the emergence of the smoking gun tape, the emergence of the tapes, and particularly yeah. the tapes showing that he directed uh, the taping, the, uh, the bugging of the Watergate Hotel. And there was that sense that Republicans who had believed him, members of Congress, 
he lost their support and he started losing the public court of public opinion. Opinion polls started showing that the public was turning against him. So the Republicans and then he, he was out essentially. But what's happened in this situation is that we almost have the smoking gun tape at the beginning. The phone call that Donald Trump released, that the White House released, is completely incriminating. It, it shows, it reveals that Donald Trump says, do me a favour, though, at one point. So it's kind of showing this quid pro quo, this kind of bribe, if you like, that's out there. And Donald Trump is owning that. He's saying, yes, I did that. The call is perfect. Nothing to see here. So really, you kind of feel in these hearings, that's still the most effective evidence for Democrats here. And no matter what anyone says in the next few weeks, these hearings are going to continue next week as well. You know, what really is going to be so bad that it makes Republicans in the public turn against Donald Trump. Right. Now, who knows, there could be something else, something really incriminating in there. We don't know. Uh, but there is that sense. And, and Adam Schiff, he's become, he's the main Democrat who's questioning yeah. Donald Trump. And he's kind of captured everything. He's saying, this is a serious matter. This is about impeaching a United States president. And he's saying there's few actions as consequential as that. And he, he kind of said, you know, this is a question for us as Americans. What kind of conduct have we, can we expect from our president? And, you know, this question will affect not only us, but the future of the presidency. And that's really what it comes down to here. What right. are Americans uh, going to expect from their president? And will they say that this is OK, what Donald Trump did? Uh, it's not for the first time. I mean, when you've been on, you know, saying would the Democrats not be wiser to form really good policy that um, <laughs> yeah. inspired Americans... But Mike Bloomberg is getting traction, it would appear. He being the yes. owner of uh, Bloomberg Network and a man mm. of extraordinary uh, wealth. Mm. Uh, what are his chances? Look, this is a very interesting turn of events in the last week or so. As you say, Michael Bloomberg has said he's going to, he hasn't completely confirmed, but he's indicated that he's going to run for the Democratic candidate. And yeah. another person, Devil Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, has said so too. Look, I don't know. I don't think his chances are very strong. One argument is that, you know, a, a billionaire businessman is not somebody Democrats are crying out for at the moment, is not really in tune with the American people. In saying that, he's got some strong Democratic credentials. He's very, very strong on gun control, for example, has put a lot of money in trying to you know, prevent gun crime and that kind of thing. And yeah. he's well known. He's got the name recognition. But look, I think his entry into the race, uh, it, the main issue here is that it's a very bad reflection on Joe Biden. Joe Biden, when he entered this race, he was Obama's vice president and um, really was seen as the front runner. And he continues to be the front runner. He is ahead in all the polls. But he has really disappointed, I suppose, since he entered. He hasn't performed particularly well in the Democratic debates. He is ahead of the polls, but just about. Mm. Um, and I think that this has, Bloomberg himself previously said this year, that if Joe Biden ran, he would not run. <coughs> so by entering the race, it's suggesting that he's not happy with the direction of the Biden campaign. He's also possibly going to take some of the Biden vote. Biden and a few others, like Pete Buttigieg, he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. They're running on a more centrist platform saying, look, this is not a time for you know radical left policies. We need to go down the middle, have centrist policies, not do some, anything too radical on healthcare, but try and tr thread the middle ground here so that we can appeal to middle ground voters who vote for Donald Trump but may vote for a Democrat this time. Right. On the other side, you have people like Elizabeth Warren, who's doing extremely well, and Bernie Sanders, who uh, support a much more uh, left-wing agenda, particularly on healthcare, saying they want a, a government system of healthcare, essentially. She's doing very well, but there's this huge split, really, among the electorate, the Democratic primary electorate, and among the candidates about do you tax to the middle 
or do you go more left wing? Right. Because the argument of those people is that that will energise more voters, more young people who will get out and vote. Somebody like Joe Biden, Mr. Safe Pair of Hands, is not exactly um, inspirational. Okay. And yes, he might he might appeal to some ex Trump uh, some Trump supporters, but is he going to get the Democratic base out to vote? They say he won't. Okay, Alison. Yeah, it's really just I suppose the labelling of left versus right, centre ground, and all that is how we see it in, in this side of the, the Atlantic and and how the US sees it. So I, I saw um, Bernie Sanders speak in Dublin a couple of years ago. He outlined all of his policies um, that, quite frankly, uh, when you analyse them, could have been uh, the manifesto for either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael or Labour or any of the the mainstream parties in in in, in this country, um, and they are viewed in the US as absolutely communist. Um, and it's just interesting to see how do you appeal? What is the middle ground in the US versus mm. the middle ground in the, in, in in Europe? Um, and mm-hmm. and it's it's very different. I think Suzanne, would you would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right there, Alison. The the terminology. It's interesting that Donald Trump himself and Republicans use the word socialist all the time. They love using that word. Say, if you vote for a Democrat, you're voting for socialism. And they're tar- so the more somebody like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Elizabeth Warren becomes the face of the Democratic Party. The Republicans love that because they feel, you know, this is the direction of of Democrats, folks. They're, you're going to vote for a socialist president. But you're right. I think the key issue in this uh, election will be health care. And Elizabeth, you're right in that Elizabeth Warren, her policy on tax, for example, is not that radical in one sense. She's talking about a wealth tax, on, but this is on very, very, very wealthy people. Is that and not also, a mortal, 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 mortal sin from a certain perspective? Often people who have nothing, um, yeah. you know, like people who had nothing objecting to getting health care. Yeah. And also people who had nothing voting for Donald Trump who yeah. symbolises American capitalism in so many ways. And, and this was obviously a huge advantage for him. Um, but they, you know, a lot of people do think that's fair enough taxing billionaires more. But it's the healthcare issue that she could be in trouble on. Um, she is the, the the irony in America is that a lot of Democrats, most Democrats, feel that the healthcare system in this country is unfair, and it's unfair that you know you your healthcare depends on your income essentially. Yeah. But when it comes to the question, are you prepared to let go your healthcare, your in health insurance, and embrace uh, you know a, a general government system? Most people don't want to do that. Most people want to hold on to their health care because this is the, the sad reality. If you have health insurance in this country, it's very good health insurance. It's excellent health coverage. So people, understandably, when it comes to their own families, don't want to, to let right. that go. Well, we so must always hard. remember that it's 50% of people here uh, have private mm. health care as well. Listen, mm. before I let you go, I want to ask you, there was a headline uh, in the Sunday Times this morning saying, Haley to the chief, uh, race hot hot to be first uh, female president. Now, they're not talking about now. The next time, uh, people will remember Nikki Haley from the United Nations. Mm. Does she stand a chance? Yeah, I think that's a very, yeah, I think there's a very good point there. Nikki Haley had said he, she was the Trump's ambassador to the UN and she stood down very out of the blue about a year ago. Um, and she has really been seen as a kind of new generation of Republican leaders. She's in her late 40s, a woman, very articulate, uh, quite experienced. She was the governor of South Carolina. And uh, I think she's been quietly plotting her political comeback, if you like. At one point, there was discussion about maybe uh, she would become the vice president. You know, there were tensions right, between yeah. her and Mike Pence. But they both denied that. But there was probably something in that. She's very close, which is very important, to Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, right. uh, Trump's daughter. Where and the son-in-law. Lies, yeah. And she knows where, yes, where the power lies, exactly. 
Um, but, you know, she's young enough that people feel that she could be eyeing a, a kind of a return to politics, particularly after, you know, if Trump gets back in, in the sec for the second time at that point. But I think she's one to watch, definitely. Okay. And I think she has got real political ambitions. OK, so just we'll, we'll leave it there. You just want to come in there, Sinead. Yeah, just on the impeachment, I just wanted to uh, tell everyone there's a really um, short but great piece by Masha Gessen in The New Yorker today about what corruption means in the impeachment hearings. And he's talking about how the word corruption can also eat itself and will be eating itself because corrupt politicians and corrupt regimes often use corruption against um, their their rivals or against who they perceive as their enemies. And it's a good way of kind of setting context out for yourself if you are sitting down and watching Trump's tweets or watching the impeachment hearings about how the word corruption is important, but how we all need to kind of stay in touch with what it, the meaning is right. for us and for I them. I think the other thing okay. to watch over the next couple of weeks is not just the polls, but also the ratings. The more people watch, as opposed to listen or read, the more people watch, the more damage he's going to be done. Do you think? I do, yeah. Not in terms of a, a, an outcome to this process. I think that's pretty well preordained. But in terms of his <coughs> overall standing in the country, I mean, he, his, his ratings are incrementally declining closer and closer and closer to base levels. Uh, and the only way he's beatable is if they can get him back to base levels. OK, listen, we leave it there for the moment. Suzanne, as always, thank you very, very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. All the best. Ciao. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio.